It's exciting. VBS is always exciting. I know some of you are disappointed because you were hoping that Sparky was preaching today. But you're stuck with me. Um, but it's exciting. And anticipation builds when we come into something like VBS. I don't know about you, but anticipation, it's hard for me. Uh, especially when I'm going on a trip, like a vacation or something. So I tend to be fairly cheap, which means I buy the cheapest plane tickets I can find, which often means they like leave at 3 a.m. in the morning or something like that. And so when I've got a red-eye flight, I always tell myself, I'm going to go to bed early. And I usually do, but I don't fall asleep. So normally, I go to bed about 10 o'clock, fall asleep about 10.30, and that's pretty standard, day in and day out. So I've got a red-eye flight. I go to bed at 8 o'clock. And I roll over and look at the clock at 9 o'clock. And I roll back over and look again at 10 o'clock. And 11 o'clock, I see. I, I usually don't go to bed for at least two hours after my normal time. So I'll often see like 12.30, and then I look and think, oh my goodness, the flight leaves pretty early. I'm in trouble, and I fall asleep and get you know, two or three hours of sleep, and I'm on the trip. That's just how anticipation works, because I'm so excited. We're in Joshua chapter 3. And remember, Joshua is about entering the promised land. Israel had to have been excited. But they had to wait two chapters before they could actually enter. But in Joshua chapter 3, we're going to see the excitement fulfilled as they cross the Jordan River. Before we dig into that chapter, though, I want to start with our memory verse because this is central to the entire process of crossing the Jordan River. Joshua 1.7. Let's say it together. Joshua 1.7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Joshua 1.7. All right. In Joshua 3, we're going to see the satisfaction of a very real need. You see, we need to be excited. We need to be so excited, have so much anticipation, that we are willing to do exactly what God asks us to do, no matter how crazy it might seem. So in Joshua 3, I want you to pay attention for three things. One, we're going to see that God expects his people to follow him one step at a time. We'll see that God reminds his people that he's actually the one leading. And ultimately, we're going to see that God expects his people to continue pushing forward. So let's look at Joshua 3, and let's start with verses 1 through 6. Joshua 3, 1 through 6. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your position and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, 
Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it and went ahead of them. In Joshua 3, 1 through 6, I want you to pay attention to the way that God expects his people to follow him one step at a time. What we see is Joshua and the people of Israel coming down to the Jordan Valley. I want to talk geography for just a second to give you an idea of what they were facing, what they had encountered. So the Jordan River separates the promised land, the land of Israel, from what's called the Transjordan area, the wilderness that's just east of the Jordan. The Jordan River itself sits in the Jordan Rift. Basically, if you think about your plate tectonics, it's a section where the plates have separated, and it's a deep rift in the Earth's crust. In fact, the Jordan Rift is 1,200 feet below sea level. So the Jordan River flows 1,200 feet below sea level. It has steep banks, so steep that they couldn't irrigate the Jordan River. And it flows from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. It was known to be a difficult river to cross. So much so that even in ancient Egypt, there are papyri documents that give directions on how to ford the Jordan River. So it's the sort of thing that they had written manuals for about how to get across this river, ancient books about how to cross the Jordan. It's a big deal. The waters flow from Mount Hermon down into the Sea of Galilee, down to the Dead Sea, and then they stop at the Dead Sea. This is what Israel was facing. They stood on the edge of the Jordan River. What are we going to do next? And God's answer is, follow one step at a time. Look at the first thing the people did. They arrive at the banks of the Jordan, and they're told to wait. The people had to wait. Wait. Three days, standing there, waiting for directions. Sometimes God asks us to get up to the banks of the Jordan River, up to the next step, and then he says, now wait. I see you're there. I see you followed me this far. That's great. Now just wait. Sometimes God asks us to wait. Sometimes he asks us to wait just long enough that we begin to get nervous. And I think that's what God asked of Israel. But then God gives direction. And I want to, you to notice the directions. He tells them, first thing, we're going to cross the Jordan River. Then we're going to enter the land of Canaan. Then we're going to conquer Jericho. Then we're going to move to Ai. Then we're going to move up to Hatzor. No. None of that is there. He tells them, follow the ark. I'm sure there are people saying, what do you mean, follow the ark? Tell me what to do next. And God says, yep, I told you what to do next. Follow the ark. Just follow God. The people were commanded to follow the ark. The ark represented God's presence. Prior, they had followed a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of cloud by day. Now they're told, just follow the ark. They're not told where they're going to go. They're just told to follow one 
step at the time. They were reminded that they're just following God. How do I say that they're reminded they were just following God? Notice what they're told. They're told to remain 2,000 cubits away from the ark. A cubit is the length of the average forearm of a man. It's about one and a half feet. So 3,000 feet. Why in the world were the people told to follow the ark but keep 3,000 feet between it? Because you're following God. God is both present and holy. We have the presence of God with us, but his holiness demands that we show reverence for it. The people follow God. But it is only one step at a time. Flying airplanes is a lot of fun. I actually have learned, because I've given a couple of aviation examples, I've learned that there are a number of you who actually have flown airplanes before, um, which is kind of cool. Flying airplanes is fun, but one of the most interesting things I've ever done in an airplane uh, was at Pueblo, Colorado, because they've got some fancy military equipment there in Pueblo, Colorado. And so I was able to fly what's called a precision radar approach. So here's the situation. You're up in the air, you're socked in with clouds where you can't see anything, it's just white all around. And your radios, your navigation radios go out, like your GPS fails. You have no idea where you're at, Thankfully, on the ground, if they've got the fancy military stuff, they know exactly where you're at. And so you call up and you ask for a precision radar approach. And this is what happens. The air traffic control literally comes over the radio and they say, turn left, start turning left, stop turning, fly straight. Descend, descend, descend a little faster, stop descending. Climb just a little bit, stop climbing. Descend a little bit further, stop descending. And they bring you in all over the place, down all the way till about 400 feet above the ground. You pop out of the clouds and there's the runway right in front of you. And you're set up to land. It is simultaneously the coolest and most terrifying thing you can do in an airplane. <laughs> because one step at a time, you never know where you're at. You know your destination. You know the destination is the runway. And you have to have complete and utter faith that that air traffic controller is telling you exactly what to do at exactly the right time. And if you follow him one step at a time, you'll not only find the airport, but you'll be set up to land on the runway. That's the picture of how God guides his people. We know the ultimate destination. It's God's glorification. It's God building his church. It's God using us in a powerful way. How we're going to get there, we don't know. God hasn't told us all of that. He just tells us, follow me one step at a time. And why do we follow God? Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9 is one of those verses that I love to not love. Because it's painful. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We follow God because our hearts aren't going to give us the right direction. 
if we trust our hearts, we live in a world that says, follow your heart. If everyone here follows their heart, it is not going to work. We actually see that in our society. The more our society tells us, follow your heart, the more it crumbles around us. Our heart is deceitful. Our God is true. We follow our God one step at a time. How do we know what God's telling us to do? We read our Bible. We pray. We talk to other Christians in the room. We don't follow our heart. We follow our God. So my question for you, my action step for you, is I want you to ask, what's the next step that God wants from me? Don't ask where the final destination is. We already know that. It's God's glory. Don't ask what's four steps down the way. It doesn't matter. What's the next step that God has for you? What is it that God's calling on you to do next? Let's move forward, though. Verses 7 through 11. Joshua 3, verses 7 through 11. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that you may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. God uses his provision to remind people that he is the one leading them. God is the one leading people, and he uses his provision to show that. In verse 9, Joshua calls all of Israel to him. Why? To tell them what God had said. You see, it's not about the tool, but it's about the one wielding the tool. Yes, Joshua had an important role to play, but it was more about God. Actually, I want you to notice something. How exactly is Joshua magnified? Is he exalted? In verse 7, God says, today I will exalt you. Did Joshua do a great miracle in this text? No. Joshua simply reported what God had told him to do. Joshua's exaltation comes completely from God, and it is completely that Joshua simply conveys God's words to the people. It was God who was doing the work. It was God who exalted. It was God who was leading the people. Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. There's a really cool, one of my favorite Hebrew grammar things going on in that word know there in verse 7, so that they may know. 
There's what's called a pedagogic noon. There's your word for the day. The pedagogic noon is there to emphasize contrast. It emphasizes contrast. Something that they didn't know before contrasted with something that they're going to know now. What is that something that they didn't really know before and that they're going to know now? That God is with Joshua. The people were going to understand in a way that they had never understood before that it was God who was leading them. It was God who was running the show. In chapter 1, as Joshua was installed as the leader, the emphasis was on God. In chapter 2, as the spies met Rahab, and Rahab came to a knowledge of God, it was God who was the center. And now in chapter 3, it is still God who's the focus. Israel is going to know that God is the focus. It was not about the strength of the enemy that they were going to face. It was about the strength of the one leading them, the one leading the charge. So there's a bunch of hard words to pronounce. There in uh, verse 10, a bunch of countries. But do a quick count. How many do you count there? Seven? Seven. There's significance, most likely, to this. The number seven in Hebrew writing often represents completeness. By putting down seven nations, what God is saying is that all of the land of Canaan, all the different people groups in Canaan, I am going to take care of them. Yes, they are strong. Yes, they're mighty. Yes, they fill the land of Canaan. But don't worry about it. God's going to drive them out. And then we see a a wonderful fact about God in verse 11. He's the Lord of all the earth. In verse 10, he's a living God. God is the one who's the focus here, and he's the one that does the work. In verse 13, God is described as the Lord of all of the earth. This land of Canaan is simply God's gift to give. God is in control. So here's an action step for you. How do I need to be reminded that God is among us, that God is leading us? You see, it can be easy to forget that it is God who is the one doing the work. It can be easy to take our focus off of the Almighty God and put it on the events, or the people, or the process. But it's actually God that's leading us. He's in complete control. We need to be reminded, as we follow step by step, that it is God who's in control. He's the one who can drive out the enemy. He's the one who can lead us forward. Let's continue with verses 12 through 17. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, 
its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now, the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. What I want you to see here is that God often starts with faithful leaders who step out, but continues with faithful followers who are willing to continue to step forward. God often starts with faithful leaders, but he continues with faithful followers. Did you catch the state of the Jordan River at this time of year as Israel is standing on its banks? It says the Jordan was in its flood stage. The Jordan was in flood stage. That's a raging river, about a mile wide in flood stage, with a current of about 10 miles an hour. And when a river's in flood stage, it's not just water going down the river, but there's usually trees and a variety of other debris caught in the river. That's the state it's in. As I read this, I was reminded of a story from when I was in grad school. Um, The teens who have heard some of the stories understand why I have to have health insurance. Um, I don't always make the best choices when it comes to fun. But in grad school uh, in Colorado, so I went to grad school at the University of Colorado, which lies right at the base of the Rocky Mountains. Um, It was a mile walk to the Boulder Creek, which was Whitewater Rapids. And at the end of our final exams, uh, the first year of grad school, we all had this great idea of, let's celebrate by hiking up to the Boulder Creek. Okay, that sounds fun. And so we all set out. And as we were hiking, we actually walked by an automotive shop, a tire shop. And I had this brilliant idea. Most of my brilliant ideas are not brilliant, just just to set things clear, of... uh, buying an inner tube that would go in a semi-truck tire. And so we bought a couple of these, and we thought, let's inflate these, and let's ride these down the Whitewater Rapids. So we bought the inner tubes, we hiked the mile, and we all jumped in the creek, and we were riding these tubes down, and it was a blast, just a complete blast. And we were all safe. We, we survived that. Um, we lived to tell the story, which I did. I proceeded to tell my younger brother. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, I told my younger brother the story, and he said, well, I want to do that. So uh, about a month later, my brother came up to visit me on campus, and we took the tubes I had conveniently stored in my office at the university, and we hiked up to the Boulder Creek. When we got there, though, it was at flood stage. It was going a lot faster. But I had survived it once, and so in my intelligence, 
we decided to go, even though it was at flood stage, and there was nobody else going down the creek, it was just us, and that should have been the first sign that this was a bad idea. We jump in the water, actually my brother jumps in first, and I have never seen the tubes go that fast. They were flying. And he hit the first rapid, and it threw him off the tube, and he goes backwards, and he hit his head hard, and I'm watching on the border edge of the creek, and I'm thinking, this is really bad. I better go in and get him. As soon as I hit the water, my legs were out from under me. And I was swimming hard to pull him in. We survived. We made it. A raging river is a force to be reckoned with. And I want you to catch what the priests were asked to do. The priests were not told, when you get to the edge of the river, it's going to stop flowing. The priests were, oh, and by the way, carry this big box on your shoulders. The Ark of the Covenant, overlaid with gold, weighs hundreds of pounds, put it on your shoulders, and step out into this raging river. That's faith. Because I will tell you, if God didn't stop that river, their feet would have been gone. And they would have gone in with a big metal box over their heads. It would not have been a good situation. God told the priest, step out in faith. And they did it. They step into the water, and what happens? It stops. Not only does it stop, but God miraculously dries the ground. They have sure footing, and they're able to begin crossing over on dry ground. But then I want you to catch the next significant part. The priests are told, walk to the middle and stop. You are to lead Israel, but not all the way. You're to lead Israel to the middle and stop. The priests were called to remain in the middle. Understand the significance of this on two fronts. First of all, for the priests. The only thing that I think is harder than leading people is trusting people to continue forward without your leadership or to lead them from behind. It's one thing to lead people and ask them to follow you. It's another thing to lead people and then ask them to continue forward. That's what God asks. I want you to also understand that the people were asked to continue marching forward, to trust that God's ark waiting in the middle, the leaders waiting in the middle, while everyone else takes it forward and enters the enemy territory. That's an ask on the people. The people are called to continue marching forward while the priests, their leadership, waits in the middle. So let me put up an action step. If you're a leader, I want you to ask, how is God asking me to step out? 
We have lots of people who are leaders in our church. God may be asking you to step into the raging Jordan rivers knowing that he's going to take care of you. How is God asking you to step out in faith? Okay, you might be saying, thank goodness I'm not a leader. Well, I've got an action step if you are saying, thank goodness I'm not a leader. If you're not a leader, I want you to ask yourself another question. How is God asking me to push forward? You see, God often asks leaders to take the first step and everyone else to drive his work forward. The leader's job is often to equip the people so that they can go out and move forward. So as we stand as a church, we have to ask ourselves, Where's God asking us to step out in faith? Where is God asking us to drive his mission forward? To enter the land of Canaan? To drive out into our community to make an impact? To drive out into this earth to make an impact? We have stepped out, I believe, as a church. We have stepped out in faith in many ways. Let's continue the march forward. I want to give you some examples of ways that this is happening so that you've got some concrete examples. There are a number of people in our church who have stepped forward and started ministries with a variety of different refugees. This is an example of driving the mission forward. Whether that's Uh, local representation of refugees, whether that's taking different refugees shopping, whether that's having a Bible club for refugees. These are ways that we step out and drive the mission forward. Here's another one. This week, we will be hosting Vacation Bible School. This is an outreach that we can do. God is pushing us to step out and to drive his mission forward. Here's a way you can pray specifically today for VBS, by the way. The weather forecast has been all over the place, and we would like to have some outside functions today. In fact, we kind of need to have some outside functions. Please pray that the weather holds around 5 o'clock when we have all the families here, and we'd like to eat outside. What way, though, is God calling you to push forward? It might be through prayer. It might be through ministering to somebody that you've never ministered to before. It might be inviting them to church. It might be simply sharing the gospel. God asks his people to push forward, to push ahead of the leadership, to step out forward of leadership. As leadership sits holding up the ark, in the middle, cheering you on. How is God asking you to take the mission of this church forward into the land of Canaan? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for Joshua chapter 3. This river crossing event 
is momentous. As the people stepped out in faith. But it's also a challenge. Because there was nothing safe or secure in human terms about what you asked them to do. But I pray that as a church, you would help us to understand that what you're asking of us might not feel safe. It might not feel secure. Going into our community and inviting people to church doesn't feel safe. People ridicule. But yet you ask your people to continue forward. And so I pray that as a church, we would reach deep into our community. As we cross the metaphorical Jordan, I pray that we would impact our community and show people that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus is our solution, that we are simply following you one step at a time, looking forward to your reward. And so I pray for your blessing on our church. I pray for your blessing as we take steps of faith forward. In Jesus' name, amen.